From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name's Rafe Larson, and I'm the author of the new novel, The Selected Works of T.S. Spivett. Uh, the, the novel is not surprisingly about T.S. Spivett, who's a 12-year-old genius map maker who lives on a ranch in Montana with his peculiar family. His father is a laconic, classic bronc buster, um, and his mother is an obsessive, compulsive beetle scientist. And uh, T.S. has been drawing maps and diagrams for the Smithsonian Museum, who have no idea that he's 12. They think he's well into his career. Um, and the book opens with a phone call from the Smithsonian uh, to this ranch in Montana. So I'm going to read a couple excerpts from Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. Um, the thing about this book is that it has all of T.S. Spivett's maps and diagrams in the margins of the book, so uh, an audio reading really misses out on some of that. We've attempted to uh, replicate some of that experience um, online. You can actually go and see a slideshow that's um, synchronized to this reading um, on uh, the Writer's Block website, which is at kqed org slash writers block. So, yeah, tune in there for, uh, for more content. The phone call came late one August afternoon as my older sister Gracie and I sat out on the back porch, shucking the sweet corn into the big tin buckets. The buckets were still peppered with little teeth marks from this past spring when very well our ranch hound became depressed and turned to eating metal. Perhaps I should clarify. When I say that Gracie and I were shucking the sweet corn, what I actually mean is that Gracie was shucking the corn, and I was drawing a diagrammatic map in one of my little blue spiral notebooks of precisely how she was shucking the corn. All of my notebooks were color-coded. The blue notebooks that neatly lined the south wall of my room were reserved for maps of people doing things, as opposed to the green notebooks on the east wall, which contained zoological geological, and topographical maps, or the red notebooks on the west wall, which was where I mapped out insect anatomy in case my mother, Dr. Claire Lineaker Spivet, ever called upon my services. I had once tried lining maps on the north wall of my room, but in my excitement to organize, I briefly forgot that this was where the entrance to my room was located, and when Dr. Claire opened the door to announce that dinner was ready, the bookshelf fell on my head. I sat on my Lewis and Clark carpet, covered in notebooks and shelving. Am I dead? I asked, knowing that she would not tell me, even if I was. Never let your work trap you into a corner, Dr. Clare said through the door. And I think she was right. I constantly battled the curious weight of entropy in my tiny bedroom, which was stuffed to the gills with the sediment of a cartographer's life. Surveying equipment, antique telescopes, sextants, Long rolls of goose twine, jars of rabbit wax, compasses, withered malodorous weather balloons, a sparrow skeleton perched on my drafting table. At the moment of my birth, the sparrow had fatally crashed into the kitchen window. A stiff-legged ornithologist from Billings reconstructed the shattered skeleton, and I was given a new middle name. Every instrument in my room hung on a hook and on the wall behind each piece I had drawn and labeled the outline of the apparatus like an echo of the real thing, so that I always knew when something was missing and where it must be returned to. Still, even with such a system in place, things fell and things broke, piles formed, and my methods of orientation always seemed to unravel. I was only twelve, 
but through the slow, inevitable burn of a thousand sunrises and sunsets, a thousand maps traced and retraced, I had already absorbed the valuable precept that everything crumbled into itself eventually, and to cultivate a crankiness about this was just a waste of time. My room was no exception. It was not uncommon for me to wake up in the middle of the night with my bed full of mapping mechanisms, as if the nocturnal spirits were trying to chart my dreams. Our ranch house was located just north of Divide, Montana, a tiny town you could miss from the highway if you happened to adjust your radio at the wrong moment. Surrounded by the Pioneer Mountains, Divide was nestled in a flat-backed valley sprinkled with sagebrush and half-burnt two-by-fours, a reminder of when people actually used to live here. The railroad came in from the north, the Big Hole River came in from the west, and both left heading south, searching for brighter pastures. Each had its own way of moving through the land, and each had its own odor of passage. The railway tracks cut straight ahead, asking no questions of the bedrock through which it sliced, the wrought iron rails smelling of axle grease and the wooden slats of rancid, licorice-scented shellac. In contrast, the Big Hole River talked with the land as it wound its way through the valley, collecting creeks as it went, quietly taking the path of least resistance. The Big Hole smelled of moss and mud and sage and occasionally huckleberries, if it was the right time of year, though it had not been the right time of year for many years now. These days, the railway did not stop and divide, and only Union Pacific freight came rumbling through the valley at 6.42 a.m., 11.53 a.m., and 5.15 p.m., give or take a couple minutes, depending on the weather conditions. The boom era of Montana mining towns was long gone. There was no reason for the trains to stop anymore. The divide, oh, the divide. I had grown up with this great border at my back, and its quiet, unerring existence had penetrated deep into my bones and brain. The divide was a massive, sprawling boundary, not delineated by politics, religion, or war, but by tectonics, granite, and gravity. How remarkable that no U.S. president had signed this border into law, and yet its delineation had affected the expansion and formation of America's frontier in a million untold ways. This jagged sentinel sliced the nation's watersheds into east and west, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and out west, water was gold, and where the water went, people followed. The raindrops blown a mile west of our ranch were land and creeks that percolated through the Columbia River system into the Pacific, whereas the water in Feely Creek, our creek, was blessed with the task of traveling a thousand miles more, all the way down to the bayous of Louisiana before spilling through the Lomi Delta into the Gulf of Mexico. Leighton and I used to climb Baldman's Gap, the exact apex of the divide, he taking care not to spill the glass of water clutched in between his hands, while I minded a rudimentary pinhole camera that I had fashioned from a shoebox. I would take pictures of him pouring water on either side of the hill, running back and forth, alternately yelling, Hello, Portland, with Hello, Nolens, in his best Creole accent. As much as I worked the dials on the side of the box, the pictures never quite captured the heroism of Leighton in that moment. Leighton once said at the dinner table after one of our expeditions, We can learn a lot from a river, can't we, Dad? And though Father didn't say anything at the time, you could see in the way he ate the rest of his mash that he appreciated that kind of thinking in his son. Father loved Leighton as much as anything in this life.
Out on the porch, Gracie shucked, and I mapped. The tickers and clickers spattered the fields of our ranch with their droning orchestration, and August swam all around us, hot, thick, and remarkable. Dr. Clare came out on the back porch. Gracie and I both looked up as we heard the old porch creak under her footsteps. Squeezed tightly between thumb and forefinger, she held a pin, on the end of which gleamed a bright blue metallic beetle that I recognized as Cincidella purpurea lauta, a rare subspecies of the cowpath tiger beetle from Oregon. My mother was a tall, bony woman whose skin was so pasty that people often stared as we passed them on the street in Butte. I once heard an older woman in a flowered sun hat remark, such fragile wrists, to her traveling partner. And it was true. If she weren't my mother, I would have thought there was something wrong with her. Dr. Clare pulled her dark hair back into a bun, using two polished sticks that looked like bones. She only took her hair down at night, and even then only behind closed doors. When we were younger, Gracie and I used to take turns peeking through the keyhole at the hidden scene of grooming on the other side. The keyhole was too small to see the whole picture. You could only make out her elbow moving back and forth, back and forth, as if she were working some old loom. Or, if you moved your body just slightly, you might be lucky enough to see some of the hair itself, the comb returning again and again, making that quiet thrushing sound. The keyhole, the peeking, the thrushing, it all seemed so deliciously naughty at the time. Leighton, like father, wasn't interested in anything that had to do with beauty or hygiene, and thus never joined us. He belonged with father in the fields, punching cows and breaking broncs. For a moment, she just stood there, serving Gracie with the big tin bucket of yellow ears between her legs, and me on the stairs with my notebook and my magnifying glass headpiece. We looked back at her. And then she said, Phone for you, T.S., phone? For him? Gracie said, shocked. Yes, Gracie, the phone's for T.S., Dr. Clare said, not without some satisfaction. Who's calling? I asked. Oh, I'm not sure who it is. I didn't ask, my mother said, still twirling her tiger beetle in the light. Dr. Clare was the kind of mother who would teach you the periodic table while feeding you porridge as an infant, but not the type in this age of global terrorism and child kidnappers to ask who might be calling her children on the telephone. My curiosity about the phone call was complicated by the fact that I was in the middle of drawing my map, and an unfinished map always left a little tickle in the back of my throat. On my map, Gracie shucking the sweet corn number six, I had put a little numeral one next to where she first gripped the husk on the top. Then she yanked downwards three times, rip, rip, rip and this motion I had denoted by three arrows, although one arrow was smaller than the others because that first rip was always a little bit belabored. One must overcome the initial inertia of the corn husk. Oh, I do love the sound of ripping corn husks. The violence of the noise, the sustained popping and shoring of the silky organic threads made me think of someone tearing up an expensive and potentially Italian set of trousers in a fit of madness that this person might just regret later. At least, that's how Gracie shucked the husks, or hust the shucks, as I sometimes call it. A bit mysteriously, I might add, because for some reason it upset my mother when I bent words in this way. 
You couldn't blame her, really. She was a beetle scientist, and she had spent nearly all of her adult life studying very small creatures under a magnifying glass, and then precisely classifying them into families and superfamilies, species and subspecies, according to their physical and evolutionary features. We even had a lithograph of Carolus Linnaeus, the Swedish inventor of the modern taxonomic classification system, hanging above the fireplace, much to father's silent and ongoing protestations. So, in a way, it made sense that Dr. Clare would get annoyed at me when I said grasshopper instead of grasshopper or expertpus instead of asparagus, because her job was to pay very close attention to the smallest details that the human eye could not possibly see, and then ensure that the presence of a hair on the tip of the mandible, or a little right rear maculation on the elytra, meant that the beetle was a sea, perforea, perforea, and not a sea, perforea, lauta. Personally, I thought my mother should be less concerned about my inventive wordplay, which was a kind of mental aerobics that all healthy twelve-year-old boys engaged in, but rather pay more attention to the mild insanity that took a hold of Gracie when she hussed the shucks, because this really ran against her general character as a bona fide adult trapped in the body of a sixteen-year-old, and to me pointed to some unaddressed wellspring of anger. I suppose I could safely say that even though Gracie was only four years my elder, she was many years beyond me in terms of maturity, common sense, knowledge of social custom, and understanding of the dramatic posture. Perhaps the unhinged look she cultivated on her face while shucking the corn was nothing more than that, a cultivation, just another cue that Gracie was a misunderstood actress sharpening her forte during one of the money mundane chores on a Montana ranch. Perhaps, but I was more partial to the idea that, beneath her pristine exterior, she was actually just unhinged. Oh, Gracie. Dr. Clare said she was absolutely dazzling as the lead in her high school's production of Pirates of Panzance, although I could not attend, because I was finishing a behavior map for Science Magazine on how the female Australian dung beetle Onothophagus sagittarius used its horns during copulation. I didn't tell Dr. Clare about this project, as she gets mad when I work with other scientists in her field of expertise. I merely complained of a stomach ache, and then got very well to eat some sage and throw up all over the porch, and then pretended it was mine, pretended I had eaten the sage and the mouse bones and the dog food. Gracie was probably miraculous as the pirate's wife. She was a miraculous woman in general, and probably the most together member of our family. For when you got right down to it, Dr. Clare was a misguided coleopterist who, for twenty years, had been chasing a phantom species of beetle, the tiger monk, Cincidella Nosferati, that even she was not sure truly existed. And my father, Tecumseh Elijah Spivet, was a quiet and brooding bronchbruster who would walk into a room and say something like, You can't bullshit a cricket and then just leave, the type of man who was born perhaps 100 years too late. And then there was my younger brother, Leighton Housling Spivet, the only Spivet boy born without the birth name Tecumseh in five generations. But Leighton died this past February during an accident with a gun in the barn that no one ever talked about. I was there too, measuring the gunshots. I don't know what went wrong. After that, I hid his name in the topography of every one of my maps. 
This is from Chapter 2. Father and I bounced along the fence line in Georgine, our old powder-blue pickup. Georgine's shocks had given out long ago, and there were no seatbelts in the cab, so I held on to the door handle with both hands to keep from flying out through the window. My father did not seem to notice that his head almost cracked into the ceiling every time we hit a rut. Almost, but it never did, and such was the way with my father. The physical world always seemed to part and make way for his presence. We were on our way to balance the water, the customary late summer opening of the irrigation ditches from Feely Creek to the bottom fields beyond Harbinger's Hill. We crashed along in the pickup for a while, silent, and then my father spoke, more to himself than me. She was running a bit last week. Snowpack still got some juice. It's like that goddamn crick is teasing me, just showing me what she got and then taking it away again. I opened my mouth and then shut it. I had several explanations for the cyclical hydrology of the creek, but then I had already shared these with my father. Last spring, only a couple of months after Leighton died, I had produced perhaps two dozen maps of our valley's water table, its elevations, the drainage trends, hundred-year groundwater levels, soil composition, and seepage capacity. I'd come into the Seton room with an armful of these maps one evening in early April, just as the heavy spring rains had arrived, and the high mountain streams were beginning to swell from the melting snowpack. This was before Father had settled on hiring the Mexicans from Ferdy, and I knew he would need plenty of help getting the irrigation system up and running. While I was prepared to strap on my boots and hike out into the fields, I had figured these maps might be more useful, given my strong mind and weak hands. Leighton had always been the one in the waders with the shovel, unclogging the ditches, unraveling the tarps, pulling out the boulders suctioned deep within the mud. Leighton was so young and small and entirely elegant up there on his gray, almost bluish quarter horse, Teddy Rue, and riding side by side, father and he would talk endlessly in a language that I could understand but not speak. Leighton, when you bringing them down? Father, land's open, three weeks maybe, we'll cut, load, sell about a quarter, size it up when she comes. You itching to push? Leighton, just about winter, sir, when we were punching last week, them critters scrawny as hell. Ferdy said, he says public's a bust this year. Father, no different than any other. Furry's a wet back in a china shop, you ask me. With Leighton gone, I found myself wondering how Father would manage balancing the water on his own. I could not simply trot up to him on my horse and replace what could not be replaced, so I did my research and drew out my water table series and entered the setting room on that evening in April. Father was sipping his whiskey, absorbed by some old grainy footage of cowboys on the television. His hat was on the couch next to him as though saving the spot. On the screen, the cowboy silently pushed a herd of cattle across the high country. With a mangy ranch hound nipping at their heels, the critters lumbered across the valley, kicking up a cloud of dust that pillowed and swirled back into itself. I watched with my father for a while. The cowboys threaded the ridge line with a kind of hip-socket ease that I recognized in him. The lazy rhythm of their canter said, Yes, it is so. And so it was. My father quietly bobbed his head to the symphony of man and saddle, as if he were watching an old eight-millimeter home movie of his family. Outside, it was raining, the drops slapping against the porch in heavy waves. To me, this was a good sign, a sign of what was to come and why these water maps might prove useful. Without saying anything, 
I began laying them out on the wooden floor. I used two of my father's cowgirl paperweights to keep them flat. At some point, very well came into the room, soaked. Without turning from the television screen, father yelled, Get! and very well got, before he had a chance to soak us with his doggy shake routine. I finished arranging my maps and waited for a break in the action. You want to give her a look, I asked. Father wiped his nose and put down his whiskey. With a long sigh, he eased himself off the couch and slowly came over. I watched him as he perused the maps on the floor, stooping down once or twice to get a closer look. It was more credence than he normally gave to any of my projects, and my pulse started to pound in my neck as he shifted from one foot to the other, rubbing the back of his hand against his cheek, looking. What do you think, I said, because I'm thinking we shouldn't lean so heavily on Feely. I think we actually go across the road and build a culvert to Crazy Swede and bullshit, he said. I suddenly remembered that I had hidden Leighton's name in the borders of each one of my maps, as I had been doing with all of my work since my brother died. Had my father discovered this in the dim light of the setting room? Had I broken the cowboy code, transgressed some line of silence drawn in the sand? What? I said. The tips of my fingers had gone numb. Bullshit, he said again. You could draw a picture showing me how to get water from three forks clear across the mountain, and you could make it look real purty. But that's piss in a tin can, far as I see. This kind of thing's for just fancy pants numbers and bullshit. Open your eyes a little bit, and you'd see that. Normally, I would be the first to dispute this. Numbers on a page, yes, but since Neolithic times, we had been marking down representations on cave walls, on napkins, on forearms, in elaborate archipelagic stick charts, all so that we could remember where we have been, where we want to be going, where we should be going. There was a deep impulse ingrained in us to take these directions, coordinates, declarations out of the mush of our heads and actualize them in the real world. Since making my first maps of how to shake hands with God, I had learned that the representation was not the real thing, but in a way, this dissonance was what made it so good. The distance between the map and the territory allowed us breathing room to figure out where we stood. I remember the first time I saw Charles Darwin's notebooks. I pored all over his sketches, the notations in the margins, the digressions, all in search of the breakthrough moment the flash in the pan that had led to his discovery of natural selection. Of course, I did not find a single moment as such, and I am not sure this is how the great discoveries were ever made, that they actually were a long series of trial and errors, corrections and redirections, where even the declarations of aha were later revised and refuted. There was one page in his notebook that caught my eye, though, the first known illustration of an evolutionary tree a few bisecting lines on the page, branching outwards, nothing more, an infantile form of the image that is so familiar to us today. The image was not what stopped me, however. Above the tree, Darwin had written the line, I think. Standing in the setting room, with the rain pouring onto our pine ranch house, the drops seeping into cracks and corners, expanding the wood, running down panes of glass through the porch into the thirsty mouths of beetles and mice and sparrows huddling in convention beneath us, I wondered how I might convey to my father that I did have my eyes open, that mapping was not an act of forgery, but of translation and transcendence. But before I could even begin to sculpt my thoughts in reply, 
My father was already returning to the couch, and the springs were creaking. The whiskey was in his hand, his attention back on the television. I began to cry. I hated crying, especially in front of my father. I gripped my left pinky behind my back, as was my wont in times such as these, and said, Okay, sir, and then left the room. Your drawings! Father yelled when I was halfway up the stairs. I went back and collected them, one by one. On the television, the trail drive had been replaced by a slow-motion rodeo. The rider seemed to hover just above the bucking beasts, teetering, leaning gut-hard, never falling until the silent bell had sounded. We watched together, my father and I, transfixed by such an audacious display of ringing death's doorbell. At one point, my father rubbed his thumb around the rim of his whiskey glass, producing the tiniest high-pitched sliver of sound. We both looked at each other for an instant, surprised at its creation. Then he licked his thumb, and I left the setting room with my arms full of the useless maps. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs) 